Children's College, um, UCL, um, to talk about the Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I made two mistakes this evening. The first was uh, bringing a jacket with me. <laughs> the second one was uh, trying to write an introductory address for Mary. Um, and I, I, I tore up the third draft. Um, I've had the great pleasure of talking to Mary in the last few days. Uh, Mary was one of my role models because when I entered nurse therapy training in 1976, Mary had been one of the group who were the first clinical nurse specialists in mental health um, on a program that started in 1972. Mary's going to tell you about that. <coughs> um, I've also had the benefit of some really lovely conversations with Mary, and she showed me all of her 87 slides, which I think she... <laughs> The, the conundrum is, how, how do you compress a lifetime into 45 minutes? Now, I've seen the latest iteration, and she's failed. She has failed. <laughs> because her, life, her lifetime um, has been impressive. It's full of achievements. And um, actually, she needs 50 minutes. So I'm going to close there and just invite Mary to give her address for this much-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award. everybody it's really nice to see you and see so many faces from the past that we haven't seen in a long time thanks to COVID um, it's a real honor and a privilege um, for me to stand here this evening and um, I want to thank Ben and all the team for all the organization that they have done here I would like to thank the people who nominated me and voted for me for this award I'm really grateful. The Journal of Psychiatric and Mental Health Nursing has been in my life for quite a while, and I was in its life at the very beginning. Um, so it's a real privilege to um, receive this award at this particular time. Um, there's so many people that I would love to thank, but I don't have the time in my 80 slides. Um, so um, I, I will take a broad brush approach and say thanks to everybody. I've had the opportunity and the privilege to work with some amazing people. I have made some incredible friends. Uh, I have got some amazing memories, some of which I will share with you uh, tonight, but I don't have time to go into all of them. Against the odds, I chose as the topic, as a lot of what I have achieved has in many ways been against the odds. So I thought what I would start off with is um, this slide, which kind of pulls together the various elements of my journey. And a lot of the things that I have done have been firsts, and Kevin has just referred to one of them. 
Um, and <coughs> I was the first in my family um, to do nursing. And, and that wasn't an easy route. Uh, I'll explain a bit about that in a minute. But other things like, um, and you'll see threads through what I say later, about collaboration, about therapeutic engagement, friendships, challenge, first time for everything. One thing leads to another and so on. So there are certain threads that go, will go through and I hope I can make it clear and you will be able to identify those threads as I go through this. And it has been one long experiential learning journey with twos and fro's and two steps forward and one back sometimes. But, but it's always been um, an interesting journey and, and a privilege. So on becoming a nurse, um, there were a number of influences in and around me, but probably the most important one was my neighbor, Peter, um, up the road. I grew up in rural Northern Ireland um, and um, horses were always part of my, my life. And I, I was lucky enough that, that we had horses, but um, at home, we always had to saddle up uh, with a bridle and whatnot. But Peter's horses, I was able to go and catch them and ride bareback, uh, much to my father's horror. But the thing about Peter was that he had a mental illness, and I didn't really know that at the time. Um, but we kind of bonded in a, in a way. Um, he would disappear for a while, and then he would come back. Um, but there was always that no one really knew or nobody would talk about mental illness, certainly not in those parts of Northern Ireland where I lived. It was um, shameful to, be, to do that. So when I said that um, I wanted to be a nurse, my, my mother just <coughs> couldn't take it at all. So uh, that's in the days when we had no social media, so we were dependent on the postman pat and snail mail. So what my mum did was, and she did it in the, with the best intentions, was she confiscated the letters that um, I was getting from the hospital that I had applied to. So she let me know about four days before it was my interview. And her phrase that she used to use quite regularly was, there's no point in doing this because you can only do a profession where you get a brass plate. So you get no brass plate if you're a nurse. Anyway, so against the odds, I went forward anyway. I um, ended up in Purdysburn Hospital outside Belfast, and that was a huge culture shock. I had no idea of what to expect. It wasn't anything like I had anticipated. I had never seen so many elderly people. Of course, anyone over 30 was elderly to me in those days. <laughs> but anyway, there were just so many people that looked disfigured, deformed, absolutely everything you could imagine, because I went to um, a, a geriatric ward uh, called Inishree, and I met Sister Scott, and she was wearing this red dress, really, and these long white starched cuffs, collar, and this box hat. Um, quite a formidable person. Uh, I was petrified. But anyway, I, I got over that, that shock. And then um, something that I'll come back to later on was another um, patient, as we called him in those days, um, and she and I had a, a, a sort of a bond, but she would always call me Nana. And she'd say, Nana, have you a butt, Nana? 
uh, because she was always smoking. That was the other thing, a part of the culture shock. I couldn't understand that people were smoking on wards, not only uh, uh, patients, but also staff. Um, I lived in the nurse's home and there were rules. And um, the young people in this room will probably be horrified when they hear that I had to apply for a late pass if I wanted to go out. Um, but there's always ways around late passes, uh, <laughs> as you know. So anyway, it did teach you discipline and uh, responsibility and accountability, but also the nurses' home acted as quite a, a pool for catharsis. So we were able to come off shifts and talk about some of the experiences that we had. Anyway, at that particular time, Belfast was exciting, still is. And um, I, I used to get engaged in a lot of extracurricular activity. I was instrumental in setting up the RCN student nurse branch in the hospital at that time. I would run jumble sales and stuff like that. I would also do a lot of volunteering. I didn't call it that then, but that's what it was in hindsight. And uh, I went to places in Belfast, which I'm sure I should never have gone to. Um, but there was no loan working policy in those days. So anyway, I, I finished my training. But uh, then in Northern Ireland, I don't know what it was like in the rest of the UK, you couldn't register to be a nurse unless you were 21. So that gave me a certain amount of leverage to do other things. So then I became a state registered nurse. It was an SRN in those days. Uh, I went to Belfast City Hospital, another culture shock. Change of pace, quite different. A lot of variety of experiences, each and every one I enjoyed. Each and every one had, had its um, strengths and, and its limitations. But when I was coming towards the end of my training, um, people got in touch with me, particularly the principal tutor. Um, she said, no, you don't, you don't want to do, you don't want to go back to mental health nursing. You're not suited for that. You're an emergency ward care nurse. So anyway, I, against the odds, I went back to Windsor House, which is a psych unit in Belfast City Hospital. And it's still there, as far as I know. So when I did that, um, it, was, it was good. But it just wasn't enough. So I wanted more independence. I wanted autonomy. I wanted the challenge. I wanted excitement. So who doesn't want excitement when you're young? But I didn't feel, I felt I had kind of exhausted my excitement in, uh, in Belfast. So I needed to do other things. So I started applying for jobs and places identified. There was a wonderful uh, nursing officer uh, at that unit who herself had a debilitating degenerative muscular condition. Um, but uh, I was going to her saying, <coughs> I think I'll go here, I think I'll go there. Uh, I'm going to need a reference. And she said to me one day, nurse, just settle down and get on with it, would you? But then I started in my enthusiasm for this challenge and excitement, I started working with Jim Quinn and Jerry Harbinson, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists doing behavior therapy work. And this nursing officer, came back to me, said she was terribly concerned about my welfare. I was staying too late and doing shifts and I shouldn't be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that. But she was doing it for my welfare. She was really looking after me. And I learned a lot from her about being resilient and about determination, because she would pull herself up the stairs every day to the unit instead of taking the lift. And that's the kind of person that she was. She was absolutely marvelous, even though she and I often you know, saw the other side of the story. So then, to cut a very long story short, 
as a result of one of the um, interventions I had done with a uh, patient, um, I was encouraged by the um, psychiatrist that I worked with at the time, who was a registrar, uh, but under the supervision of um, Jim Quinn and Jerry Harbinson, to uh, put in an abstract with this guy and uh, go to a conference in Wexford. Um, so I had to go back to the nursing officer and ask for funding to do that. And she said, right, well, one minute you're off to Zambia, next minute you're going to Canada, and now you're going to, you want money from me to go for a conference. Just, I don't understand you, she said. You don't know what you want. But anyway, I'll give you the money. But she laid down conditions, so which I didn't meet. Um, <laughs> anyway, that particular conference in those days, and this just goes to show you the history and how long I've been attached to this stuff. Um, that was called the British Association of Behavioural Engineering. Listen to the language. Then that became the British Association of Behaviour Therapy in 1972, led by Professor Isaac Marks. Then it became, in 1992, the British Association for Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapies. So you see the language and how the whole thing absolutely turned on its head. So at that particular conference, when I was explaining why I did what I did with this lady, I had no idea that the people in that audience was Marx and Gelder and Meyer and Bringelman and all of those very famous people in those days um, in, in behavior therapy. And I had no idea that the people that I was working with at Windsor House, uh, I knew they were clinical academics at Queen's, but I had no idea that they were so influential in the field of behaviour therapy at that particular time. I was totally unaware that I was in the midst of making history. So then, I, when I finished my blurbing um, about what I did with this um, particular patient, um, Isaac Marks came after me and um, out to have a coffee and explained about the course that he was planning to set up at the Maudsley. And he said, um, you should apply. I said, no, I don't want to do that. That's London, I'm staying in Belfast. Um, because we're going to do the same thing here. Anyway, we didn't do the same thing there because the nursing council in Northern Ireland wouldn't approve it. So Isaac had said to me, look out for the application in the nursing press, which I did. I applied. And then we had this absolutely grueling process, which Kevin will be able to uh, verify, where we were assessed every possible angle for two days. We had where you were assessed as individuals and as, as a group. And that's when I first met Eileen Skellen. And Eileen Skellen became part of my life thereafter. So against the odds, I was accepted for, for that, that course. And it was a risk taking. So the next thing I had to do was leave Belfast and go to the bathroom. So you see in the caption, the bottom of your screen, is my story from leaving <coughs> Belfast to go to the bathroom. I got the um, RASC to do me a, a map. Uh, we, di we didn't have a technology in those days, so you had to depend on the paper. Anyway, I got lost in Putney about, I don't know what time <coughs> it was. I called the police. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, please, I'm lost. <laughs> and the guy, I mean, they did answer the phone. Uh, the guy said, oh, well, love, I'm, I'm so sorry. I think you need to just have a cup of tea and settle your nerves. <laughs> so, which I did. Uh, anyway, I, I, I eventually made it to, uh, to the Maudsley. But that particular image 
is uh, very telling because that is now in the Bethlehem Museum of the Mind, my, my hologram. So, you know, I think it's right and fitting that I should be located in a museum. Um, so, anyway, it, it's a great place to go and anybody that ever has the opportunity, uh, please go visit because there's, there's lots of wonderful artifacts there. Now, that's my little, my little um, and lovely Ford Anglia car. Um, that uh, took me all the way from Belfast uh, to, to Bethlehem. So then there were five of us, and we were an experiment for three years. We were taught for two. Uh, we were monitored and assessed for three plus. Um, it was a research project funded by the Department of Health, which Isaac Marks led. And uh, as Kevin said, we were the first generation of clinical nurse specialists, but we didn't know that. We were all doing something that we, we were really interested in. But we were based at 99 Denmark Hill, still there. And uh, we lived at the Bethlehem Hospital, some of us on site and some off site. But we used to travel up and down in my Ford Anglia, three blokes in the back and uh, Moira and I in the front. We were all very different characters, came from very different backgrounds, very different parts of the UK. We got on most of the time. We were supportive of each other, but there was, and it's only now reflecting back on it, there was a current of competitiveness uh, that existed. And we did, we did a lot, and we, we did achieve a lot, and even though I say so myself. So it was, as I say there, a tapestry of and for learning. It was amazing. <coughs> we had the best experience possible. We met leading experts like B.F. Skinner, like Jack Rackman, um, Falloon, and Martin Seligman. All these guys, and they were mainly guys in those days, um, gave us lectures or workshops or whatever. The one thing that really did terrify me was the one-way mirror experience where we had to um, interact with the patient, set goals and do all that under the scrutiny of peer group. And uh, bearing in mind we were competitive now, um, the peer group and also our supervisors. All of the patients knew that we were trainees, that was made very clear to them. And, and each of them um, were very comfortable to, to have us as, as their um, therapists. Um, so everything was video recorded and yeah, it was, it was a challenge. It was quite scary. But equally as scary was the ward rounds um, when um, Isaac would get down on the floor and if he were dealing with somebody who had OCD, he'd be modeling, touching the carpet and then licking his hands and all of that. And uh, the other thing was the data. He was data mad. And he would get down on the floor and he would the graphs everywhere. We all had to keep graphs. And I remember there was no technology in those days. So we were sitting punching things into a computer, not like today. <coughs> um, and that was hard work. But e equally as hard work was the scrutiny of our GP letters and how we were constantly corrected. And uh, you, sometimes you didn't know if you were in English class or you know, a behavior therapy course. Anyway, you would have had the same experience, Kevin. So then um, they decided, uh, remember we were an experiment, so they decided that we need to go on this convent. So I went for one year to Springfield uh, and um, that was to see if we could function outside of the motherland. Um, and uh, I was supervised there by a clinical psychologist and psychiatrist. 
uh, we had regular meetings back at the base, um, always testing to find out what new interventions we had done, how many hours we had spent with patients, how many sessions we had, when we were going to do follow-ups, what was the process of the follow-ups. It was constant bombardment, but it was good fun. But anyway, um, I didn't know then that 30 years later, I would come back to Springfield as the chief nurse and the professor of mental health nursing. Um, and Springfield looks more or less the same now as it did then. So I remained at um, Denmark Hill, um, but as we had, uh, I called it there, a passing out parade, my challenging nursing officer came from Belfast with her physical disability to attend that event, which I thought was really quite remarkable. I didn't expect to see you there at all, uh, but anyway. But the one thing I will say about that course that it was and still is the most successful, effective qualifying course in mental health nursing. And if you look, um, the, all of the people who've completed that course have all ended up in extremely influential leadership roles, either clinicians, managers, or researchers. So it's, it's a credit to Isaac Marx for the work that, that he did, supported by Eileen Skellen, because he couldn't have done it himself without the support of Eileen. But we weren't universally accepted, and some professions didn't like us, and we were called cookbook therapists and all sorts. So that is my web of learning, the things that I got from doing the course, which eventually became a joint board um, 650, and then ENB 650. So there's probably some E and B 650 years in the audience. Um, so those are some of the things that I learned, but there's also some consistencies in it about, about relationships and therapeutic engagement. Uh, but I did learn that, you know, there's a first thing time for everything, the value of data and measurement, which has stuck with me ever since. I learned and I developed a sense of self-confidence, which I didn't have before. And also, I realized that I probably had a bit more ability than I thought I had. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, that, that went on. So then I had a change of direction. Um, I got a nurse therapist um, course up north after I had left the Maudsley, or before I left, because I only went there for seven months after I finished, because Peter Lindley was on the Tudor's course, and Peter was coming back then. So he was going to take over um, to be the uh, tutor on the course. So uh, Miss Skellen uh, invited me to her office and she said to me, um, I have a job for you and you can do it. And that job was to set up a behaviour modification course for nurses working in learned disability, which I did. That caused me a lot of anxiety, a lot of new learning. Uh, I had the benefit of working in a highly functioning multidisciplinary team where parents were an active part of that team but I had to learn that there were different goals and different expectations when working with people with learning disability. And I found that really, really hard work. But having worked with people who were experiencing anxiety and depression, to go to this other end was, was really quite difficult. Uh, but that course became the Joint Board 700 and then ENB 705. And that too was highly successful against the odds, even though I started off with um, limited experience of working with people who had learning disability. So I stayed at the Bethlehem um, and I did all of those things. 
Uh, but throughout my time there, uh, Miss Skellern, as I always refer to her, um, was always there beside me in a way. And even when she was very ill and when um, we had our first baby, she sent me a handwritten note. Um, and I came across it when I was preparing the stuff for this um, presentation. And it ended off with, don't forget to let me know when you have a name. So that just says something about the person that Eileen was. So I went back to Northern Ireland because an opportunity arose. I went to the University of Ulster as a lecturer with the responsibility for um, the mental health nursing pathway. So I had to reacquaint myself with clinical areas that I had been before. I went back to Windsor House um, uh, with Kadir Parahu, some of you may know. Kadir uh, started the same time as I did at Ulster. And that was the first time I met Hugh McKenna. And uh, Hugh McKenna has been in my life in one way or another ever since. So I, I wasn't sure how to begin to do this, uh, set up this course um, in, for BSc, Nursing in Mental Health. So I decided I would ask patients, service users, what they thought would be a good thing to do to include. So I uh, carried out a series of uh, focus groups. I asked that question, and that's what they told me. Someone who listens, has time for me, accepts me. So that's what I tried to put into the curriculum. But they also taught me lots of lessons about, because um, I thought I was you know, quite clever. Um, I was capturing all the things that they had told me in a language that was acceptable. They told me, no, you don't use that language. We don't want to hear that language. So I had to um, rework it taught me that I shouldn't assume anything about being on the same page with anybody, um, and that I needed to listen to what people were saying. So ever since then, I have used, have involved service users in everything that I do. Now, I was doing this in 1986, when it wasn't really the thing to be involving mental health service users in education or research, but it just seemed to me to be the right thing to do. Then also as part of that course, um, that I was involved with. Um, the woman who led that course was a very influential person, uh, very far-sighted when it came to nursing. She was quite idiosyncratic in the way that she went about her daily business, um, but she was quite a visionary. So she um, detailed Vivian Coates, my prof Coates, uh, and myself to do this module on microcomputing and nursing care planning. Well, I knew something about nursing care planning, but I knew nothing about microcomputing. So again, we had another challenge. So as you can see there, we went about our business and it worked out very well. We had publications from it, which even though they're quite elderly now, they're still there. And uh, it led to the three points below. But in, the, in all of that mayhem, <coughs> there was um, a senior lecturer at the university called Ollie McGilloway. And um, he's amazing. If you ever Google him, uh, he did a lot of, he was like Northern Ireland's equivalent of David Attenborough, uh, because he used to do lots of wildlife programs and all sorts, as well as being a scientist in the proper sense of the word. But he used to say to me things like, girl, you know, just chill out. Things are never tomorrow as they are today. And that's very true. Um, 
So that opened up lots of new horizons, like the European Summer School of Nursing Informatics. All, was all came from those little presentations and publications that Viv and I did. And then we went on to do lots of, uh, lots of uh, things with that. We spent a lot of time in Wales, in Swansea, because uh, they hosted the summer school more times than any other of the um, participating countries. At one time, there was about 18, I think. Um, I did most of the work in terms of um, organizing it and the applications to the EU, because it was EU funded. Um, and then it led to a lot of other um, influential things, and also the careers of some people who, who taught on that. In the early days, we were very dependent on expertise from um, the US because they were more, uh, or appeared to be uh, more advanced in the use of technology in healthcare than we were. But we had our own experts. We had Paul Wainwright, we had um, Nick Hardiger, uh, Derek Hoy, who unfortunately and sadly is no longer with us. So we, we had a lot, but it led to a lot of other things, including the RCN Nursing Informatics Group, where we worked with June Clark, um, Sharon Levy, um, and um, Anne Casey, and a number of people there. So it was quite an influential thing, from again, from small beginnings. The largest thing were that came from our small publications, um, so we never ignore starting small, uh, was the Action Project, where we had um, 2 million euros, um, over 2 million euros, which was a lot of money in 1997 um, when we got the grant, but it took a lot of time to, 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 to work it up. Um, and um, we had a lot of partners. It was highly um, multi-professional, and it gave me opportunity because I was responsible for two units in that. Everything was driven by family carers. That's why it was so, it was so successful. And it, we had technology, and we had like a fourth TV channel. Now we're talking about 97, 98 here. We're not talking like, you know, a few years ago. Um, so it was highly innovative, and it was ahead of its time. Um, and carers absolutely loved it, because we took on board the things that they said they needed. They wanted help with emergency intervention. So what to do when somebody fell down the stairs, or somebody choked on a tube? How could they manage that? Because they were left to, to do that. And um, so I developed, with the help of software uh, programmers and engineers, um, the emergency interventions and also the carers coping capacity. So that allowed me to take my mental health nursing skills and my CBT skills uh, into focus um, again. So that then went on to influence other interventions and a lot of what we did then is now commonplace because people use video conferencing all the time and so on and so forth. Then that led to the Northern Ireland Centre for Health Informatics which I also led. Again, it was a collaboration with trusts and higher education institutions and big pharma. And in many ways, now it's, uh, we have got the applied research collaboratives, which in many ways mirrors those um, initiatives that came from the UK Foresight Programme. Um, we had opportunity to work with lots of interesting people. And the most interesting one for me was Arnold uh, Nikogosian, who was um, a real gem of a person, and I think that's why. And um, now I, when in initially I might have been a bit apprehensive about meeting people like the chief medical officer from NASA 
it, it, it wouldn't have the same impact anymore because Arnold was an ordinary person. Um, and I think that's a lesson I've learned um, that we're all ordinary people doing ordinary jobs, trying to do the best that we can for the people that we care for and work with. But mental health nursing always stayed alive in everything that I was doing. So we had the BSc for registered nurses, and within that then I started the BSc uh, in CBT and uh, psychosocial interventions. But a very important part of getting mental health nursing to be visible uh, was the practice development and mental health program that I did with um, 10 healthcare trusts in Northern Ireland, the Royal College of Nursing Institute in Belfast and Oxford with Martin Ward and Jackson and Moira Davern. And that was absolutely brilliant. And for me, it was a real good example of how you can integrate research into practice with very good, clear programs, lots of uh, mentorship and support. And that did change the perception of mental health nursing in Northern Ireland. It also changed the careers of some of the people who um, contribute to that. And Anne, you probably remember the lady who said that um, she was about to give up and take out her knitting. And as a result of this program, then she went on to the BSc in nursing. So it, just examples like that makes the whole thing worthwhile. <coughs> so that's just some of the publications that we had as a result of that. But then I used that approach again when I went back to Springfield. So again, what was really important to me was all the time that this sort of chaos was going on and the toing and froing was Hilliger Peplau. And um, that's a snapshot of Hilda um, when she got her honorary doctor's Ulster. And her when she was um, at nursing school in Pennsylvania. And then when, when I was applying for the job at Ulster, that's the note that uh, Hilda sent me. She used to send me letters a mile long in all handwritten like that. Um, and um, you know, I would send her something at Christmas, maybe on say, I'll write to you in the new year. And then she'd get back to me and say, which new year do you mean, Mary? <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, she, she was brilliant. But then she said to me one day, this is one person you must meet, and that was Shirley Snoyak. So um, I did meet Shirley Snoyak, and we stayed friends until sadly Shirley passed away on the 1st of April last year. So that's when uh, Shirley got an honorary doctorate at Kingston. And uh, when she used to stay with us in Northern Ireland, she loved uh, bottle feeding her uh, orphan lambs. So she was a woman of many talents. So again, on my mission to increase the visibility of mental health nursing, um, I was part of the Journal of Psychiatric and Mental Health Nursing. So I was a member of the working group that was with Blackwell Science to establish it. And uh, Steve Tilly and I were the editors of Research and Brief for over 10 years. I wanted to try to make mental health, because this international conference at Ulster as their 10th anniversary year, I, I was the ringleader um, in getting this conference going, but I wanted to have mental health nursing presence there because a lot of the people that were coming there were not mental health nurses. Uh, but Hilda was there, and Shirley was there, and Annie was there. But I thought this is a great opportunity to launch the Journal of Psychiatric and Mental Health Nursing, which is what we did. And we had 26 countries represented. 
um, and um, that's what happened. Hilda, Hilda got her honorary doctorate. And then I got a personal chair in my mental health nursing in 1989. And um, those are my, my colleagues. I was the chair of the nursing executive group then, and they told me that I was the first person in, in Ireland to get a personal chair in mental health nursing. So throughout all of this has been this therapeutic relationships and, and me wanting to learn a bit more and understand a bit more what, what happened. And it goes back to um, Nana have you but Nana, because there was something about that person that connected with me. Um, I don't know what it was, but we got on like a house on fire wherein she didn't call many people Nana and some other staff she just wasn't too keen on. So sometimes situation could be different and difficult. But anyway, um, that got me thinking a lot about what happens with relationships. So then I decided I would do a PhD looking at how students learn the skills of um, psychiatric nursing and what's the contribution of the ward environment to that. And I said that within Bandura's work because I feel that his social cognitive learning theory is so relevant to what happens in clinical placements because it's about the interaction between the individual and the environment. It looks at things like self-efficacy, self-belief, reinforcement, role modeling, expectancy, all of those things that are so important to student learning and which often are not the role modeling bit is really, that troubles me at the minute. I'll come to that later if I have time. Um, so it was, it was a marvelous experience, taught me a lot about SPSS and factor analysis, which nearly killed me. But um, anyway, it came to stand me in good stead later. So this is um, a bit of my experience. The first night I went to start my observation studies in a psychiatric hospital in Belfast, no, outside Belfast, in Oma. Uh, I couldn't get in because I couldn't get to the keys and I could see the keys through the window but I couldn't get in to get the keys. Anyway, some nice gentleman came. My, my husband and our two babies were there at the time um, alongside me, struggling, trying to get in. Then when I did get in, the bedside light bulb blew. Then the curtains fell down. <laughs> then the next day I had no hot water. And I called my husband and said, take me home and he refused. <laughs> so against the odds, I stayed. So then I, I, had, I, I felt the need to, um, to go back, back to London and move forward, or back to Oxford and move forward, because there was things I wanted to do. Um, and anyway, I, I got a joint appointment at, um, after spending some time at the Research Institute in Oxford. Uh, that was a new job for me. I had no experience. I was never a senior manager in a trust, so I got that job against the odds. But it was brilliant because it gave me the opportunity to work with nurses on the ground to introduce leadership roles. The RCN leadership program was really helpful to me, as was the practice development program. I got research positions for nurses and things which hadn't happened before, but it brought me much closer to the lived experience of service users which led to a couple of projects that I will flick through very shortly. So one was to understand the experience of um, detained patients and also to work with uh, service user researchers. Um, and that was a brilliant lesson, again, about data analysis and, and how 
you know, we, me, as a, a nurse academic can see things through a different lens than can a, a service user researcher. And then that led to the eSightNurse.net program, EU-funded project. I miss the EU, they're very good to me. Um, and, and again, that was influencing service users in some of those countries, with the exception of the Republic of Ireland, the RFI, uh, there was no service user involvement at all. So as a result of this project, we got a lot of service user involvement, particularly in Finland, and it's still going now. Um, and, and that was about how we could impact on the lives of service users with registered nurses using more effective and ethical um, interventions. And we used virtual patient scenarios, which was again was a new thing for me. I'd never done that before. But it was all the service user stories, and they worked with us and the, and, and the uh, software developers to do that. Well, that's just some of the publications that we got from that. But all of this was leading to something uh, also in my, my role as um, the chief nurse at um, Springfield and, and the Associated Trust. And it became very clear to me that within a few months of starting that job in uh, 2004, that there was a, a sort of a, a lack of understanding uh, between what the trust board wanted to do and what the nurses on the ground understood about the trust board. So I had to find a way of um, getting them to understand each other. And I also learned very quickly that boards are not interested in anything anecdotal. They're only interested in numbers and traffic lights. So I thought I needed to do something about that. And I started this thing which we fondly called PINS. Um, it was great, but it was unrealistic because it was far too time consuming. It was attempting to achieve lots of things, some of which it did, but it wasn't sustainable. But the principle was right. Um, because I wanted to make mental health nurses value themselves, and I wanted the people in the trust to value what the nurses did on the ground. Uh, and sometimes that, that value wasn't there. Um, so then that led to the therapeutic engagement questionnaire. So I took the lessons that I had learned from, from the PINs to, to start this work, which was funded by Kingston and also by the nursing division of the Department of Health. Uh, and Ben Thomas was there, which was really useful. So it was a real partnership with um, service users and an advisory group, and there's some people like Fiona Noland here, uh, that, that was part of that and, and steered us um, through it. And I was really worried, um, and I'm still worried, I'm getting more worried, that mental health nursing was becoming an endangered species. Um, and, and I really wanted mental health nurses to value what they did. Um, and there was no metric there to do that, and there's a real story behind that, but I don't have time to tell you that. Um, so we developed the tech, and we used psychometric principles. So we, we had uh, proper item generation, item reduction, factor analysis. So my experience on the PhD stood me in good stead. Um, and we had a whole batch of mental health service users and nurses that, that worked with us on that, that project. So in total, you can see the numbers there. And when I think about it, what I was asking mental health service users to do was incredible. I was asking them to complete not only the tech questionnaire, as we fondly call it, but also the house and the star to be able to validate it and to have authenticity and credibility. And service users did that. It was over um, 600 of them did that. 
So again, it's about making the invisible scales visible, which was the title of my Alien Skeleton Lecture in 2017. And it was an impact case study for the ref. So I will digress for a moment because the Mental Health Nurse Academics group here, along with four other groups, nominated me to be on the ref subpanel three. So thank you colleagues for nominating and supporting me um, in, in doing that. It was brilliant. It gave me an opportunity to see what nurses were doing um, in research terms and what mental health nurses were doing in particular. And I'm nearly finished. Right, there's, those are um, examples of, of question of um, publications, but one in particular is the bottom one, which we have just had published at the end of last year. And that was about the implementation of the therapeutic engagement questionnaire. And I take my hat off to nursing colleagues in the clinical area because they worked with us and they did that during the time of COVID. And when they were stretched beyond stretching and they still did it. So, you know, it's amazing what mental health nurses can do. So also, uh, as part of that, I was developing the Centre for Public Engagement along with Sully Brealey, who was a colleague at the faculty, and uh, Dr. Gary Hickey, who was um, um, uh, PBI lead, and Holly Elson, who was the administrator. And the whole idea of that was to bring um, service user activity in the faculty together, but not only in the faculty, but, but beyond. And then some of the research that we did um, was adopted by the Collaboration for Leadership in Applied Healthcare um, for Health Research and Care. And an example of that was uh, a project um, that we were invited to do by a local CCG who wanted us to explore how the service user voice was made evident in the um, commissioning of, of services in the local um, locality. And that project was then adopted by, by, by the clerk, which was that. Um, I'm sure most of you will have heard of Sir Graham Thornycroft. Um, Graham led the clerk, and Graham also leads the ARC, uh, which followed on. So as part of the ARC, I was a member of the Strategic Oversight um, Patient and Public Involvement Group. And then with the new um, ARC, I became the PPI research um, theme lead. And that's a bit of what we do, because it's all about getting applied, about research getting applied into practice against all the challenges that we face these days. Ambitious, some of it happens um, as we would like it to, and some of it comes across as challenges. So in conclusion then, I've had an amazing journey. I'm proud to be a mental health nurse. I have met and worked with wonderful people in a variety of contexts. I formed numerous friendships. I revisited and continued to revisit and stayed attached to fond places, the Bethlehem Royal and the Maudsley, hence my um, hologram on the wall uh, and my position in the museum. I now do voluntary work there, so I like to keep my foot in the door. Um, working with Kevin at the IOP with an honorary lectureship. Go back to Windsor House. I still work with people in Jordan that I 
uh, first went there at the invitation of the British Council in 1987. Uh, South Africa the same, a paper that uh, Liana Ace did on uh, concept analysis of uh, therapeutic um, engagement was one of the, the things that really got me interested, amongst others, in therapeutic relationships. So I hope I've made a difference a little bit on my journey. And um, I learned a lot. I'm still learning. But I still have things to do and people to see. So I haven't gone away yet. <laughs> so some of the things I would like to do, I would like to uh, work and support colleagues who are much younger in years than I am and have got bags of energy and enthusiasm. And I really want to help them make sure that mental health nursing doesn't become extinct because I have got a terrible feeling that that's, there's something conspiring against us. I'm going to continue as the uh, Applied Research Collaborative PPI Research Theme Lead on to 2026 because uh, we've just got the grant extension to them. Um, I have the book on psychiatric and mental health nursing craft of caring has to be edited and um, thanks people in this room who are contributing to that. Um, I am guest editor of Frontiers in Psychiatry, um, special issue on cultural considerations in relation to mental health stigma. I um, I put in a bid to do something on the implementation of the tech. Uh, we've been invited to do something on validating the tech for use with children and young people. I'm part of a major project funded by the Norwegian Research Council on Resilience and Healthcare. And uh, I have a lot of other projects locally. So onwards and upwards, folks. Thanks. Mary, that you just made a whole transformational leadership career sound effortless. So <laughs> well done, it's amazing. Um, I'm just going to invite uh, Professor Ben Hannigan if he'd like to come up and present Mary I'd, with her. I'd award. be delighted, Mary. <laughs> um, just before I do, Mary, um, my good friend, Professor Philip um, Bernard who is not able to be here today, sends his very, very warmest wishes to you and to everybody. Um, and you have on your last but one slide, you hope you've made a little difference, Mary. You've made an enormous difference. And it, was, it is with very great pleasure that I would like to give you this plaque. A few words from me. Um, we're going to. We will conclude uh, the evening. Um, I want to thank Mary again. Um, I'd like to thank Anne. Uh, Anne is still here. Anne, thank you so much. Thank you so both of you for your contributions for your talks tonight. Um, Trudy, Trudy, thank you very much for your creativity. Um, is it true that you are possibly going to become Bard of Carmarthen? It's true. <laughs> Very many congratulations. <laughs> um, this evening happened because an awful lot of people and organisations and um, helped it to be so. Um, I want to th I want to thank everybody whose logos you'll see at the bottom here on the slides, who continue to support. 
the uh, Skellen and Lifetime Achievement Award lectures. Big thanks to them. Uh, thanks to Gary. Where, where is Gary? Here he is. Gary, thank you. Uh, Sally, thank you both for keeping alive uh, the Skellen uh, lecture. For um, You're the core of the team, are you not? You, you are indeed. Seems to me that you are. We yeah, with oh oh dear, I'm, I'm, and the danger is in saying you're the core of the team, but naming everybody, you're part of the core of the team. Thank you for keeping the lecture series alive, um, Steve. Big thanks to you, um, and our best wishes to Sue Tranker, CNO. Thank you for your support. Your support has made it possible for this to be live streamed. Um, thank you, Adam and colleagues in Drake for live streaming and the live. Thank you very much. And the live streaming has gone through Mental Health TV. So our friend Dave Monday at the back, Mental Health Noises Association. Um, and we hope that for posterity and for viewing for the hereafter, it will be possible to see the recording of this evening's event on Mental Health TV. Thank you very much. Um, here in Cardiff University, uh, Dave Whitaker, head of school of the Healthcare Sciences. Thank you very much for supporting this event. Um, for people who are members of Mental Health Nurse Academics UK, we'll be back here in this very room tomorrow, um, minus the wine, but there we go. <laughs> um, colleagues in our marketing team, Ellie, um, helped us an awful lot. A colleague Teddy in the university's conference and events team, hospitality and building people, they looked after us very well. Thank you very, very much. Um, Seren, thank you very much. Where is Stephen? Thank you very, very much for immense support in making this possible. Planning for the minutiae. Nick, thank you for chairing. Um, and for people who presented, for people who gave plaques, for people who came here, for people who have listened online and will listen to the recording in the future, thank you. There's one other thing I need to say, and Gary will be looking at me thinking, is he going to forget? No, I won't. So, okay. It's Sally, isn't it? The nominations are open, am I right, for the Eileen Skellen Lecture 2024 and the Lifetime Achievement Award 2024. And Sally Hardy, you are the person to contact? Send nominations, Send nominations to Sally Either Hardy. Myself or Gary will work it out between us. Absolutely. Catherine. Catherine. <laughs> ah, the three, of you, the three of you who are the beating heart of the, yes, okay. And, okay, so nominations for the Lifetime Achievement Award, nominations for Scanner Lecture, and, nominate, and expressions of interest to host the event in 2024. I mean, they've got a lot to live up to, though, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, very best. And I might go to the pub afterwards. <laughs>